Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Tuesday, and even in an age of hype, I think it's hard to overstate the magnitude of last night's news about a leaked Supreme Court draft decision overturning both Roe and Casey. So there's a lot to talk about uh, the fallout for the court, why there is the leak, what it would mean if this was, in fact, uh, the opinion of the court, the political fallout, the fallout for abortion rights around the country. So we are very lucky to be joined by Benjamin Wittes of Lawfare this morning. First of all, uh, good morning, man. How are you? I am very well. I have to say I was taken by surprise, as was everybody, by the news last night. But you know, it's another day in America. Yeah, well, you were taken by surprise, but you can imagine if you were Chief Justice Roberts. <laughs> yes, well, I imagine Justice Roberts had a bad night. Um, ah. uh, and you can tell from the nature of the opinion that he's caught in the middle, and he is certainly caught in the middle of the leak episode, because I think the one person who you can be very confident did not leak this draft opinion was John Roberts. I think that is a safe bet. So I want to talk about uh, Ukraine and a brilliant, I don't want to call it a stunt, a a, a, a brilliant oh. bit of, how would you, how would you describe it? A performance I would call card? it a trolling, trolling stunt. Yeah. Okay. But it was, um, I, epic. it was, a, it was an epic troll. I, okay. I like to think. Okay. St- people should stick around for, to, to find out what Ben Wittes did with the Russian embassy in Washington, D.C. If you don't know the story, you're really going to want to hear it, and you're going to want to hear it from the horse's mouth himself. Okay, so let's talk about the leak of this draft decision. Now, there are people who are saying, well, you know, the original 1972 Roe versus Wade case was uh, leaked before it was issued, but that's not the same thing. It was ours. It was the final decision. It already was a done deal. As Politico reported last night, no draft decision in the modern history of the court has been disclosed publicly while a case was still pending. So SCOTUS blog tweeted out last night, it is impossible to overstate the earthquake this will cause inside the court in terms of the destruction of trust among the justices and staff. This leak is the gravest, most unforgivable sin. Your take on this, Benjamin Wittes. So... You know, there's a tendency among Supreme Court institutionalists to elevate the leak over what I think is the real bombshell, which is that the Supreme Court seems to be poised uh, and seems to have uh, five votes to reverse, uh, overturn 50 years of precedent on a subject on which a great many Americans believed with the repeated assurance of the Supreme Court that they had a reliance interest on a constitutional right. That is a huge thing, whether you think it's right or wrong. And next to it, the leak of the opinion, uh, the draft opinion, actually strikes me as a rather transient and somewhat less important thing. That said, um, it's not unimportant. And, you know, I do think the two things are connected that somebody was either upset enough by the prospect of this happening to leak the opinion, um, Mm -hmm. or somebody was eager enough to have this happen that they wanted to prevent defections by uh, some of the conservative justices. I think it might be particularly aimed at, at 
you know, Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch leaked it uh, by way of kind of locking them in. Hmm. And so I, I don't know whether this came from the left or the right. And I honestly wouldn't want to speculate and cast aspersions about that. But it does seem to me to be very deeply related to the substance of the opinion. That is that the court is poised to do this, take this very intensely political step, again, whether you think it's right or wrong. And so you have the norms of the behavior of the Supreme Court breaking down uh, uh, from one direction or another in response to that or in coordination with that. Yeah, we, we obviously don't know why or or who leaked this. I mean, it, it seems clear that it's an attempt to influence or pressure the court before this uh, this draft is finalized. And this is a draft. It was written in February. So at this point, we don't know whether it's been revised since then, uh, whether it still has the support of five justices. In the past, justices have been known to change their minds after the preliminary vote. And, and so nothing's final until the decision is released, and that won't be for a couple of months. So these are just important, just caveats to get in place. What strikes me about this, let's go to the substance of this this opinion. Um, I mean, this is a full-throated overturning of both Roe and Casey. It is very much in the voice of Samuel Alito. The contempt for the original ruling uh, comes through, I think, virtually on every page, raises all sorts of other questions about unenumerated rights in the Constitution. Uh, some people are reading this as possibly endangering other of these cases. So let's just talk about what it takes for the court to overturn settled constitutional law. This was something that Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh reportedly assured Susan Collins they would not do, that they regarded these things as settled precedents. So give, give me your take on all of that, because as you point out, I mean, there are a lot of people who think that Roe was a terribly decided case originally, that it was bad jurisprudence. But, you know, after 50 years, people come to rely on it. So it's not a small thing for the court to overturn something this major in, in this definitive a way. Right. So there are many ways to look at Roe that are legitimate. And I think as liberals, we should allow for the idea that there are about 10 different orienting points that you can start with about how one should think about Roe v. Wade 50 years after the fact, uh, given all the history and water under the bridge. The one that I favor is that the opinion on its own terms is indefensible. However, when the Supreme Court has articulated a, a principle that grants people rights over a long period of time, has repeatedly reiterated that principle, and people have grown up with it as part of the fabric of the rights that they enjoy, you tinker with that extremely carefully. and. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think there's plenty of room to be skeptical of Roe v. Wade as a mm -hmm. original legal matter and still say that what the court is contemplating now is a very radical step. Uh, this opinion reflects the opposite, you know, almost the diametric opposite of, of that. It says the line of cases is rotten root and branch. Yeah. And it needs to be uprooted root and branch. And the 
reliance interests that people have developed on it, which, by the way, you know, involves people's most basic life choices, right, um, is something that we can actually just throw out. And that there are five votes for that proposition on the Supreme Court is a remarkable thing. I, I mean, you know, if uh, I know for a lot of pro-life people, that's a that's a restoration of the normalcy that should never have been disrupted. And I I respect that point of view. But I, I think, you know, the pro-life world needs to understand how jarring and angering this is to people who grew up with a sense of bodily autonomy, including reproductive freedoms, as part of their uh, basic package of, of, of human rights. And so I think what Alito wants to do is return this to the political realm. Right. And I think, you know, he maybe should be a little bit careful what he wishes for there. Um, uh, but I think you're going to see uh, a degree of political contest over some very basic first principles that we have not seen in a long time. Well, yeah, I mean, this, of course, was the argument that um, Roe versus Wade uh, took took the decision out of the hands of, you know, the democratic process and therefore contributed to polarization. Uh, and there are some people who are, you know, somewhat optimistic. Um, I think, you know, my, my good friend David French is thinking this might actually lower the temperature of the culture wars because now people will be able to work this out and compromise. I, I by the way, do not share that optimism. I, I think that this basically uh, is, you know, cry havoc and, you know, let's slip the dogs of, of culture war. It's I mean, this is going to be hand to hand combat in every state house. Uh, there are going to be, you know, boycotts. Uh, we're going to have a very, very divided country. The gap between blue and red states will grow wider as a result of of this. And uh, I don't think that even by returning it to the states, it's resolved because do we know what the actual test is now? So this would uphold a 15-week ban. What about a six-week ban? What about a complete ban? Do we, we, do we now have any sort of guide rails for how state legislatures should go about what their limits are on regulating this? I think we do. There yeah. are no limits on yeah. state legislatures no in limits. regulating. Um, so that would have been the sort of chip away at Roe, right? Give states more flexibility. I think that's I, I'm, I'm guessing here, but I suspect that's probably where the chief justice is. These are five votes for overturning Roe v. Wade entirely. Entirely. It, so, it, it, and, and all of the cases that flow from that. Correct. Yeah. And it's in very strident language. And so when I say there's a, you know, there's a hundred ways of looking at Roe, right? And you can look at Roe and say, okay, it's right. It was right when it was decided. It's right now. You can say, as you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg used to used to argue, it was right in outcome, but decided on the wrong grounds and right. should have been decided on on equal protection grounds. You can try to reorient it the way the majority or the plurality in Casey reoriented it, right? Or you can say, hey, as I think the Chief Justice is probably going to argue. It may have been wrongly decided, but people have come to rely on it. So let's give states a little bit more flexibility. This is not any of that. Right. This is saying it was wrong when it, it was. I, I think the the word is is 
egregiously wrong when decided, Agreed. and it's egregiously wrong now, and it's overturned, meaning the right does not exist. Um, and, you know, I have not read it, read the 98-page draft carefully either at this point, but it is not a subtle document. No. And, and that's why I'm, I'm wondering whether it will be modified in the in the revision stage. But we don't know. But it, but it, go to the language. Uh, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has had damaging consequences. And far from bringing about a national settlement of the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. This is Alito's language. And I understand where he's coming from, but I think it's just highly naive to think that this is not going to inflame the debate and deepen the division even more after 50 years of relying on this decision. So, I mean, I think that when this goes to the states, I mean, you look at a map of what the country looks like, you know, in the South and the Midwest, uh, most abortions will be illegal at this point. I mean, obviously, you're going to have some states will ban abortions after 15 weeks like Mississippi. Some are going to exclude, will include exceptions for rape and incest. Others won't. Uh, other states will try to limit abortion to the first six weeks. Some might try to ban it altogether. I don't know. In the blue states, uh, you can have legislators who will want to codify some of these protections. Uh, so you're going to have, you know, red states imposing criminal penalties, blue states maybe expanding taxpayer funding. I mean, this is this is going to be wild. I actually fantasized back in December how this is going to play out on the right. You know, the, somebody like J.D. Vance will come out for a ban after six weeks, Josh Mandel will then call for a ban after two weeks. And then Marjorie Taylor Greene will declare that all true conservatives support a total ban on abortion. Madison Cawthorn will insist that the true pro-life position, you know, demands the death penalty for doctors who perform. Them. I mean, it, there's going to be this bidding war, especially since there's no limit right now. Like you can do this, but you can't do that. I mean, this is like it is now complete free for all, at least at least based on our understanding today. I think that's right. And I also, I mean, I, I, I suppose the hope would be that you are right in the short term, but David French is right in the longer term. Yeah. That is, that you have a period of a few years that is, you know, quite ugly. And then you end up in almost all states sort of settling on some compromise within a reasonable range, and you would have a few outlying states on both the pro-choice and pro-life side, and, you know, the United States would look a little bit more like Europe, I guess, would yeah. be the... But I, I think there's a lot of reason to believe, and Roe v. Wade may be part of, partly to blame for this, that, you know, we're not as a society right now in a compromising no. mood on these issues and that both sides will just continue to push such that this is a, uh, you know, a matter of ongoing contest over a very long period of time, including, by the way, every time a Supreme Court justice is is nominated. Oh, I agree with you completely on all of this. I mean, there there are based on polling, uh, you know, which suggests the public has uh, has has mixed views on this, particularly. I mean, they they support legalized abortion. Most Americans uh, in the in the first trimester, but then support drops off. I mean, dramatically drops off second and third trimester. So you can see what a compromise might look like. But we are not in a mood for compromising. So you're right. So I, I think at this point, it's 
not just Supreme Court justices. Uh, it's every legislative and governor's race is a referendum on abortion. Every congressional Senate race is going to be about abortion. Next presidential race might be on, on abortion. So, I, you know, in, you know in, a, in a sane, rational world, you know, maybe we would have a healthy debate, a healthier debate than we have now. But does anybody really think we live in that world right now? Do we think we live in a political environment that particularly values sanity? Or that this is going to lower the temperature? I'm sorry. I, I would like to think so. But Ben, let, let's talk about the political ramifications. You talked about uh, the anger that this is going to generate. And of course, one of the big questions is whether this actually makes a difference in the midterms and beyond, whether or not Democrats uh, will be able to mobilize around this, or frankly, whether Republicans will be able to mobilize around this. But let's talk about that after this. Okay, bear with me here. Tanning yourself with a red light, apparently it boosts testosterone. That's why some men are reportedly doing this. And some people think it's a testosterone issue, but I see something a little bit bigger. I see a society that's failing our people today. More and more males are dropping out of school. In fact, the economy is tanking due to various factors. And when men can't provide, they feel lesser, right? So I just don't think that tanning yourself with red lights is the main solution here. Masculinity may be in danger, and it's not just men. We live in a world now where everybody is struggling financially. That's probably why everybody's looking for new ways to help themselves. So for those struggling with finances, instead of tanning yourself with a red light, I want you to check this out as an alternative. Go to masterworks.art slash bulwark and do your due diligence. Before deciding to invest, carefully review important disclosures at masterworks.io slash cd. Again, that's masterworks.art slash bulwark. Okay, I'm back with Benjamin Wittes from Lawfare, and we are talking about this bombshell report of the leaked uh, draft opinion that would rather categorically overturn Roe versus Wade and, and all of its uh, related cases. So how do you think this plays out politically? Uh, obviously, it upends the midterms, but will it make a difference? How, what, what, do you, what, do you th- what do you think the scenarios look like now? So I I don't know and I don't trust anybody who claims to know, but here is what I think the parameters of the question is. Uh, First of all, it definitely gives Democrats a better narrative. Uh, For the last uh, few months, the narrative on the Republican side has been inflation, you know, Afghanistan, weakness, Mm -hmm. culture wars. Right. And the kind of narrative to the extent that the Democrats have had one has been we're sane, we're responsible, they're nuts, COVID. Right. And I I think this gives a better running narrative, which is we're sane, they're nuts, and the Supreme Court has just overturned Roe v. Wade, so if you value abortion rights, you have exactly one thing to do. That raises a question that we genuinely don't know the answer to, which is for how many pro-choice voters abortion is actually a voting issue. And we don't know the answer to that question because for 50 years, your vote on the subject hasn't really mattered very much. Mm -hmm. And so pro-life voters their vote has mattered because they needed to change the judicial environment. But pro-choice, pro-choice voters, you know, 
if you voted for pro-life candidates, you were still going to have uh, access to abortion. And so it was kind of a more symbolic issue for a lot of people on the pro-choice side. Now it's not. You know, now if you live in a state with a with a significant uh, pro-life constituency, the consequence of what the Supreme Court may be or appears to be about to do is that you could actually lose your right or your daughter's right to access reproductive health care. And I think the question that we don't know the answer to is, do as many pro-choice voters consider that a single issue litmus test voting issue as pro-life voters do. If they do, this could profoundly change the electoral midterm situation all over the country, particularly in, I would think, places where you have kind of vulnerable marginal Democrats in substantially conservative-ish districts but who ran on issues like healthcare access. I'm thinking of people like Alyssa Slotkin and yeah. Abigail Spamberger. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like their chances in November a bit better than I did yesterday, to be perfectly blunt. Um, that said, um, you know, maybe pro-choice voters just don't care about this as much huh. as, we, as we think they do. And in which case, I think it would change a lot less than we might expect. So I, I don't know. I think it's a, uh, it's a really interesting hypothesis. And if I were the Democratic Party, I would make it a very central part of my campaign on the theory that the polls show that while people do have mixed feelings about it, at the end of the day, they want abortion access, at least in in early parts of pregnancy, to be relatively liberal. I think you have it right. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking back to a conversation I had with a very, very prominent Republican official. This is actually back in the 90s, who, you know, had broad bipartisan support and uh, he was pro-life. But he didn't emphasize it a lot. And he basically said, I am pro-life, but a lot of pro-choice voters uh, in in my state voted for him anyway, because as you point out, um, there was really no downside to it. It was, you know, it was like writing out a check that, you know, was not going to pass. And there there was an ability for Republicans to, you know, take the position, check the box and then not do anything about it or or not emphasize. I, I think that that sort of immunity is gone. Secondly, um, other Republicans were able to vote for uh, pro, you know, a- anti-abortion legislation, you know, strict bans, knowing that it would never go into effect. So it was purely symbolic. Now that's also gone. So that changes the dynamic. Now, having said all of that, I do think that there are some risks for uh, the, the Democrats here. Uh, and I'm going to I'm going to throw in my usual caveat about how bad they are at politics. Um, I don't know how you feel about this, but if they focus on the the threat to abortion rights, um, especially in the first trimester, um, I, I think they will get some traction on that. On the other hand, if they are distracted by uh, the bright, shiny objects of court packing, I think that that will turn on them. I think that that would be one of those issues uh, that would backfire. And, you know, based on past history, I'm, I'm guessing that there will be uh, some attacks on the legitimacy of the court and, you know, the desire to, you know, You'll vote for Democrats and we will pack the court again. So and, and if I'm a Republican, I'm waiting for that to pounce on. So I completely agree with that. I think the message has to be 
and again, I have no polling data to back this up. This is just an, an instinct that it should be very simple. It should be the Supreme Court is allowing, you know, has overturned Roe v. Wade, and that means uh, abortion rights are on the ballot. I will support them. My opponent will oppose them. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking at a um, uh, a tweet from, uh, I believe, the incumbent Democratic Attorney General in Michigan. Uh, her name is uh, Dana Nessel. And uh, she was up with this uh, this tweet last night, a video of my Republican opponent, his name is uh, Matt uh, DiPerno, saying that he will prosecute women and their doctors for abortion with no exceptions for rape, incest, or medical emergencies. And then she writes, women in Michigan should be terrified right now, vote like your life depends on it. Okay, I mean, that's a little, you know, overheated, but, but. Um, that strikes me as the way, um, you know, Democrats, uh, are, if they want to weaponize this, you know, you know, go, go for those things as opposed to, and I'm, I'm just saying the court packing thing is a loser. The other thing is there is a danger when you look at the polling numbers on late term abortions. Um, again, strong majority, like 70% of Americans did not want to overturn Roe versus Wade. More than 60% of voters think that abortion should be legal in the first uh, trimester. But then when you get to the second trimester, it's only 28% and, and only 13%, 13% support legalized abortion in the third trimester. So if I'm a Republican, I want Democrats to be talking about abortion on demand uh, all the way through pregnancy. I want them to be talking about late-term abortions. If I'm a Democrat, I, I want to focus on you know, women's right to choose in the first uh, trimester because the politics are completely different depending on who successfully frames this issue. I agree with that. I also think uh, your earlier point about not focusing on packing the court, I would take a step further. I would not focus on demonizing the court. There's going to be a temptation to make this about the evil Sam Alito. You know, Sam Alito has had a consistent view of abortion, Roe and Casey, since at least the early 90s, when I believe he wrote the opinion that the court overturned in Casey when he was a judge on the Third Circuit. You know, Clarence Thomas has been Clarence Thomas on this issue for a very long time. And I don't think that anybody, even Susan Collins, can be too surprised at what Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett and Neil Gorsuch are doing. This is what happens when a political movement, i.e. the conservative political movement, over a very long time aims to put justices on who are methodologically hostile to uh, the way a case like Roe v. Wade is decided. And I don't actually fault particularly the justices uh, who are in that majority for the outcome. And by the way, there are a lot of people out there who are not going to like this opinion who uh, don't particularly have it in for Sam Alito or Clarence Thomas. And so I would just say probably best not to personalize it. Make it about your rights. Yeah. Make it about what you think women who are pregnant, and I agree in the first trimester is where you want to focus the conversation, should and shouldn't have the right to make decisions for themselves. And, you know, I, I do think it's very probably a winning issue for, for Democrats, whether it's a winning issue 
adequate to overcome the headwinds that they are otherwise facing, of course, is a different yeah. question. You know, one of the big question marks I have is what sort of chaos you're going to see uh, if this draft opinion becomes the final decision. For example, in my home state of Wisconsin, we actually have uh, an unenforced pre-row ban on abortions. It's been on the books all these years. And of course, in Michigan it, too. Exactly. In fact, Wisconsin and Michigan are, are in the same uh, are in the same uh, category. So, what happens? What happens uh, this this fall? Will it be up to individual DAs and individual counties? Uh, and and so the chaos, the confusion, and the doubt, uh, I, I think, is going to be considerable in states like like ours. Right, and and of course, in states where the law is unclear. Uh, that creates a real set of uh, on-the-ground issues regarding DAs who are seeking uh, uh, right. re-election, attorneys general at the state level, and governors, because, you know, uh, uh, obviously that's going to be an issue between uh, Governor Evers and whoever ends up uh, as his opponent um, uh, for re-election. Uh, you know, where it is also interesting is in states where the local law may be relatively settled, but the constituencies of different congressional districts, their views on this may be quite different from their views of other issues. So think about suburban districts that are relatively conservative, but have a lot of professional women in them, right? These are the districts that won the Democrats the House in 2018, and there's an enthusiasm problem right now among Democrats. Does this have effect on yeah. those marginal suburban districts? I kind of just have the sense that it will, but I, I can't support that at this stage. Well, no, I, I think that that's a reasonable supposition. So, for example, in Wisconsin, we have, you know, a, a very, very weak uh, Democratic governor, uh, Governor Evers, who I think was pretty much a dead man walking uh, in this this election um, because of the enthusiasm gap, the turnout uh, gap. But uh, now this uh, gubernatorial election might be a referendum on whether or not you're going to have, um, you know, a right to an abortion in the state of Wisconsin, because the, you know, all you need is a really a Republican attorney general and a Republican governor. The law is already on the books and it's over. It's right there. I mean, it will be decided in this this election. So let me ask you one other question. Um, Alito in the draft goes out of his way. He's kind of defensive about this emphasizing that the decision only involves the right to abortion and no other right. In fact, he's, he's, he wants to be he's so adamant about it, he has another sentence. Nothing in this opinion shall be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. But people are noticing that a lot of the language in this decision says, you know, we can't really recognize unenumerated rights unless they are strongly rooted in U.S. history and tradition, which, as observers are noting, seems at odds with a bunch of the court's recent decisions um, involving the right to privacy, including many of its rulings backing gay rights. So all of those would seem to be implicated if you're saying 
that if it's not explicitly in the Constitution, it must be strongly rooted in U.S. Uh, history and tradition. So there is no explicit right to privacy. There is no explicit right to gay marriage. Is are are people right to be concerned at the wait for this one the penumbras of this decision? Of course, they're right to be concerned. So let's start with the um, uh, uh, the decision in Lawrence v. Texas, which is before you get to same-sex mm-hmm. marriage, you have the decision striking down sodomy laws. And this was an opinion that overturned a prior 1985 or 1986 decision, Bowers v. Hardwick, which had upheld this. So this is a, a contested idea in relatively recent decades, right? Whether a state can uh, make a crime out of gay sex. And I don't see how the logic saying the entire row right to privacy with respect to your own medical choices, decisions, line of cases is illegitimate and needs to be uprooted doesn't at least raise a question about whether the right to sexual privacy, uh, which has kind of common roots, um, is improper as well. Moreover, there are, of course, antecedent cases to Roe, particularly uh, the uh, Eisenstadt and Griswold cases, which involve contraception, that also have common roots, right? And so, again, if you're saying uh, that unenumerated rights that have that don't have you know deep roots in the american tradition and you're trying to like and i decide what deep roots are of course it raises questions about those as well as for obergefell the 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 same-sex marriage cases so i think it's you know does it require that you get rid of those no but are people right to be raising a concern about them of course no, I think you're absolutely right. And so a, a little known fact, uh, back in the late 1990s, I wrote a book about uh, the right of privacy where in, in a rather tortured fashion, I tried to uh, argue that uh, that even conservatives should recognize a right to privacy in the Constitution, irrespective of how badly it was handled in Roe versus Wade. Because this is one of those, if you take the Alito line, then the position is there is no right to privacy, and it affects every one of those other cases you mentioned. Well, and it potentially affects a bunch of other things, too. So where exactly do parental rights come from? Well, I suppose you could argue that those are deeply, deeply rooted in, in history and tradition, right? I, you would have to. No, yeah. I, I mean, the, the the point is there are a lot of unenumerated rights right. that are just assumed, you know, the, Which, by the way, conservatives used to like that. Remember, they used, there was a period where conservatives liked the idea of the Bill of Rights having, you know, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments and unenumerated rights and, you know, and anything that not granted to the government was reserved to the people and all of that. They used to like unenumerated things. Yes. And and there are all kinds of things that we assume are rights that you would not want to kind of blithely bring into question. Look, that said, as I say, I cannot blame Sam Alito, who has never believed in this right, who has dissented from every decision upholding abortion rights on grounds, basically, that this line of cases is illegitimate for 
you know, having the votes at this point. And I, I also don't blame Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and for Amy Coney Barrett as well for describing as settled law something that they that is at this point settled law that they mean to unsettle or that they're open at least to unsettling. I think that's a creature of the way the confirmation process forces judges to talk. And I think it's unfortunate. Um, I do think, uh, however, that we are in a situation in which this stuff is squarely on the table. And if people believe in abortion rights, they're now going to have to fight for them in the political realm. Okay. So we had promised that we weren't going to spend the whole podcast talking about this, although we certainly could. I, I am was absolutely fascinated by your performative trolling of the Russian embassy. And I think you actually, did you talk about it the last time you were on the podcast saying you were thinking of doing it? Because I remember you and I had a conversation. I can't remember where we had the conversation. I don't remember whether that was on the podcast. I I did say I wanted to do it on Twitter and I actually, okay. I, I, but you I, did it. Yes, we did it. <laughs> we put together a, and the, we here is not the Royal. We, it yeah. was a, a group of us put together a, a fairly large team. We got a lighting company in Washington, uh, atmosphere, uh, lighting in silver spring to lend us 15 extremely powerful spotlights um, and we got generators to drive the spotlights. We colonized the roof of an apartment building next to the Russian embassy, and we lit the whole thing up in blue and yellow. And you, live project, you projected the Ukrainian flag on the Russian embassy. Yes. <laughs> and um, oh! and um, and then here is the coup de grace that we did not plan, which is that the Russians, it turns out, had prepared for this, and they had their own spotlights, and they tried to wash out our spotlights. I watched this on live stream. And this was a gift that only Vladimir Putin can give you because it gave us a plot line, right? Before we just had we just had the building lit up, but all of a sudden they're chasing our spotlights around with their spotlights. And, uh, you know, and that you can set that shit to music. You can, uh, you know, you got all of a sudden major media is interested in it because there's a spotlight war going on on the Russian embassy. So, yeah, we I we had a good time. We, it was four and a half hours of playing games with the Russians. And I'll say it right here, Charlie, there's more to come on this. Oh, that's so we have good. A, we have a surprise for the Russians for Victory Day, which, you know, May 9th is Victory Day. And I don't want any Russian diplomat in Washington feeling too secure about it. Too sweet, too sweet. So have you set it to music? Oh, many people have set it to oh, music. I have not. But oh, uh, I, I definitely want to link to that. I, I, I definitely want to watch that. Yeah, I believe uh, Kate Klonick said it. There have been many set, uh, uh, set to music TikTok videos and stuff of the little cat and mouse spotlight game. Who said America is not great? It's great. It, it is great. And by the way, yes. Uh, ask me about the Secret Service breaking up the protest. Oh, the Secret Service broke up a protest? 
They did not. They oh. were extremely cooperative. And uh, we coordinated with the Secret Service. You know, they asked us at one point to raise one of the spotlights by a few inches because they were afraid it was going to get in driver's eyes on the, at the street level. And we complied with that. Uh, we had a great relationship with the Secret Service. And we even tried to order them pizza, but they couldn't accept it. They wouldn't do that. So, they I mean, couldn't. They, oh, okay. It's coordinating with the Secret Service. I mean, how, do, how does that work? It's like, Hey, uh, Ben Witt is here. I'm, I'm, I'm calling for the Secret Service. Just to let you guys know, we're going to be assaulting the Russian embassy. You'd be cool with that. We uh, didn't do it by phone because okay. Okay. if yeah. in the event that they were, we were going to have a problem, we wanted at least the first few minutes uh, of time with the <laughs> yeah. lights on. Right. right? So, but you, you study what they enforce against and what I they see. don't. So they're more concerned about stuff on the embassy side of the street than they are about stuff across the street. Okay, okay. They're more concerned about noise than they are about light. They're very concerned about anybody approaching the gates of the embassy or trying to get on the property or throwing stuff onto the property. So, you know, when you show up, you make sure you're not engaged in or threatening to engage in any of the things that they're concerned about. And then they'll come over and talk to you and just ask you what you're up to, how long you're going to be there. And you ask them what, you know, are there any red lines? You know, what's the, Mm -hmm. uh, and you just, you make sure you're open and transparent with them. And uh, I thought they were terrific and they, you know, their job is to protect these rotten, horrible people and that's, uh, you know, just, a, doing their a, job. just doing their job. And our job is to make life as uncomfortable for them as possible. So you basically went into this uh, thinking that it would be better to ask for forgiveness than permission if things went south. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had a lawyer on standby <laughs> in case we needed one. Well, yeah. Um, good. But we were pretty conservative about it because we were dealing with $15,000 of other people's equipment. Sure. Um, and so, you know, I wasn't interested in getting other people's lights seized. Oh, and then the, the coda to it was during the live stream, I announced that we were going to be planting sunflowers across the street from the embassy on the Saturday following. And uh, the Ukrainian ambassador and the staff of the Ukrainian embassy showed up that Saturday to plant sunflowers with us. We planted hundreds and hundreds of sunflowers right across from the embassy. And of course, sunflowers are the national flower of Ukraine. And so there will be a kind of field of sunflowers for the Russians to look at over the course of the summer. Ben, chef's kiss. Just perfect. Just wonderful. And stay tuned. I don't want to know. May May, May, May 9th. Let me just, let me, it's it's, going to be lit as the kids say. Okay. Let me break that down in the circle that put that in all my calendars. Ben, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. It's always fun. Thank you much, Charlie. You're a great American. Hey, gang, I just wanted to drop in to say thank you for joining me here each weekday. And also, I want to give a shout out to our Bulwark Plus members who helped underwrite this show and keep everything we do at the Bulwark sustainable. You might think that a Bulwark Plus membership is all about our newsletters like my daily morning shots. But really, Bulwark Plus membership is about a lot more than that. We're building a community of independent-minded, concerned patriots who value democracy and the truth. 
We make most of what we do free and accessible by everybody because you can't help save democracy from behind a paywall, but we do have some great member-only benefits that I'd like to share with you because in addition to our newsletters, members have commenting privileges and also have access to ad-free versions of this show and all of the podcasts in the Bulwark Network like Sarah Longwell's Focus Group Podcast and Mona Charon's show, Beg to Differ. And there's the Thursday Night Bulwark, a live video broadcast that we host for members each week on Zoom. You can give Bulwark Plus membership a try for the next 30 days for free. Simply go to thebulwark.com slash charlie to claim your free trial today. That's thebulwark.com slash charlie. Thanks. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.